0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's premier provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any technological device, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, You name it. And here's a terrific deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get yourself some literary classics like 1984 by George Orwell. Or how about The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway, narrated by William Hurt. Or go get The Color Purple by Alice Walker. Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash otherpeople. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my
0: God. You are not alone. You have found other people.
2: You and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful.
2: Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded
1: seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, <laughs> right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is the program. Thank you for being here. My guest today is Tiari Jones. She's the author of three novels, the most recent of which is Silver Sparrow, the critically acclaimed Silver Sparrow, now available from Algonquin Books. Uh Tiari's been on a huge book tour over the past year. She's visited over forty cities, and she's currently a Radcliffe Institute Fellow at Harvard University, where she's researching a fourth book. So she and I are going to be talking at length in just a moment. Uh, but before we get there, uh I want to discuss what's been happening and what has been happening. Uh lots of different things, but in particular I want to focus on some strange human behavior. Uh namely, I got sick last week, which I guess is sort of strange. Uh, I got some food poisoning and was decimated by a foodborne illness, uh, which uh, had me in bed for like 30 consecutive hours at one point. So I was not in good shape. And uh, as a result of the illness, I had to cancel some meetings and appointments uh, and so forth. And I did this via email generally. Uh, And what's interesting about that is that when I would write these emails, uh, I would apologize, obviously. But I would also include uh, mention of the fact that it was unusual for me to be sick. Like, I I would emphasize that. So, I would start out by saying, you know, I'm so sorry, I hate to cancel. And then I would close by saying, uh, by the way, this is very strange. I hardly ever get sick. And, uh, you know, this this I find somewhat odd. Just the fact that, uh, for some reason, I wanted people to know that I have a robust immune system. You know? Like, like what is that all about? Uh, It was almost as if I was ashamed of being ill. Which, I guess, you know, I kind of do get that way. I kind of take it as a defeat. When I get sick, I find it embarrassing. and uh, so it makes me think back to this thing that happened last fall, which I don't think I've ever told anyone about. It, it's a uh, kind of this small moment that has become a persistent memory. Uh, and it was a few months ago and I went to the pharmacy to get a flu shot because uh, I have a small child and uh, it's advised that you get a flu shot when you have a small child. So I go to the pharmacy and the pharmacist is this woman about my age, and uh, she's sitting there preparing my arm for the injection. And I'm trying to make small talk with her, uh, you know, just to kind of be friendly, but also probably, excuse me, to keep my mind off the fact that I'm about to get a, you know, a needle jabbed into my arm. And so I ask her, uh, you know, I say, you, you know, do these things really work? Are these flu shots really effective? And, you know, she says, yeah, you know, to some extent. And that wasn't really the kind of definitive response that I was hoping for. So then I asked her, you know, did you get one? Did you get a flu shot? And she turns to me and I remember her face kind of went a little bit cold and she says to me, I don't get the flu, you know, like it was beneath her or something, like almost like I was offending her by even asking the question. And, uh, I remember, I remember it, uh, it threw me so much that I didn't really say anything else. And then I, I just kind of got my flu shot and thanked her and left. Um, but you know, I don't know. That's what I mean by strange human behavior, uh, particularly when it comes to illness and uh as strange as you know as strange as it is i don't think it's entirely unique uh you know i think that wanting to present uh you know a robust immune system to the world is actually sort of common in some strange way i think uh you know people get competitive about that stuff if that's the right word you know they get get competitive about wellness as i cough so uh You know, it's kind of like when people get competitive about stress, if you know what I'm saying. Like when they sit around trying to one-up each other about how hard they've been working. Uh, You know, like where one person says, I only get five hours of sleep a night and I work six days a week. And then the other person says, you know, well, I I only get four hours of sleep uh, every night and I work seven days a week. Which, uh, you know, is sort of sad really and kind of depressing. Um, and so to continue along the same line with regard to odd human behavior and odd competitions, uh, you know, uh, I find it interesting that, uh, human beings like civilian human beings will often compete, uh, to see who can care less about seeing a famous person. You know, this happens in Los Angeles a lot in particular. And, uh, it's like this game to see who can be more nonchalant, which I find, uh, fairly interesting, uh, where it's like, you know, you'll be out somewhere in Los Angeles and, and you know, Gene Hackman will walk by and, uh, you know, one person will be like, you know, is that an actor? You know, as if they don't know who he is. And then the other person will be like, oh yeah, you know, like Gene Hackman. And they'll like, they'll say it as though it's a question. Like they can't remember. Uh, it's weird. And it does happen, I think somewhat often. And, uh, it brings up the issue of fame, which when you live here in Los Angeles, you you sort of have to deal with as a function of your environment, you know, like, you in this city, we have, uh, lots of famous people roaming around much like if you live in Alaska, you know, you see a bear or whatever, you know, you see a bear and you're, you're like, there's a bear, but in Los Angeles, instead of a bear, it's uh it's like Lawrence Fishburne or someone. So you don't take a picture of him, you know, you don't take a picture of Lawrence Fishburne. You know, you just, you just recognize that it's Lawrence, you know, Lawrence Fishburne and, uh, you know, and he's in his natural habitat. So, uh I do recognize famous people when I'm out in public. I'm actually pretty good at that. And from an observational and curiosity standpoint, I do enjoy seeing them in the wild, in their natural habitat, and I can remember some of these moments. Uh like uh I remember for instance seeing Leonardo Di- uh Leonardo DiCaprio with his dad at the grocery store one day. Uh and they were there buying, you know, noodles or whatever. And the reason I knew that it was his dad was because it was Father's Day and I kind of put two and two together uh, and it was sort of nice. And, uh, you know, I see Charlize Theron a lot for some reason. Uh, I see Paul Rudd uh, every once and again. I saw Beck one time at the mall. I ate dinner next to Britney Spears one night. Uh, You know, this was like when she was really crazy. Uh, And I found her much taller than I expected. Or maybe she was wearing, you know, heels or something. But the point is that you know, it's not to sit here and name names. Uh, The point is that I lead what I consider to be a pretty boring life. And uh, I'm not a hugely social person in Los Angeles, Uh, you know, especially in the context of like the Hollywood entertainment machine. But, you know, just as a function of living here, you run into these people. And uh, it's like if you, you know, if you live in New Orleans, eventually you're going to see a parade or two. And so uh, I don't talk to, you know, I don't talk to these people. Uh, I would never do that. I'm too shy and uh, just think that you need to, you know, respect some, some boundaries, uh, you know, unless it somehow happens naturally, uh, or unless I'm really drunk, which, uh, which has happened a couple of times. But the truth is that, uh, I don't really want to talk to them. I want to watch them. And so I wind up pretending that I don't recognize them, which is kind of what I'm driving at. And so, uh, beyond that, I, I really don't get any kind of like thrill, uh, out of seeing them, you know, beyond like raw curiosity, Unless the famous person has some sort of relationship to my childhood, in which case I find that, you know, that's kind of the key to my excitement. You know, like that's what really triggers it is is if it's uh, somebody from my childhood and then somebody who's kind of lesser known from my childhood, especially. So to give you an example, uh, one of the people that I got most excited about running into was the woman who played Chevy Chase's love interest in Fletch, the blonde woman. Remember her? She was really pretty. Uh, she's married into the, uh, in the movie, she's married to the, the character named Alan Stanwick, and her character is named Gail Stanwick. And uh, I had a huge crush on Gail Stanwyck when I was uh, growing up in like elementary school and junior high and whatnot. And so, uh, you know, a while back I was at the grocery store and I run into Gail Stanwick after all these years. And in that instance, I got so excited that I almost said something I almost did. And of course I wanted it to be witty and I was rehearsing it in my mind And, uh, you know, I wanted it to be good. And I started playing out these scenes in my mind. Uh, And when I do that, you know, it usually winds up being a situation where, you know, in my fantasy, it goes over extremely well. Uh, And, you know, with Gail Stanwyck, I I think I imagined saying some line from Fletch or something, uh, something that that I'm sure she's probably heard a million times before. But in my imagination, my delivery was impeccable. And she wound, you know, she wound up like laughing hysterically and the cashier laughed and like the guy bagging groceries laughed. And it was like one of those scenes where like everyone with an earshot was laughing. So it was kind of like a delusion of grandeur. And, uh, so anyway, the point that I'm driving at, and it might not be much of a point is that fame and Hollywood fame in particular in this weird way, like makes act, you know, it makes actors out of everybody and, and it makes performers out of non-performers and uh you know uh, almost nobody knows how to handle it almost nobody knows how to handle fame especially not out in the wild you know in controlled environments in like controlled fame environments it's fine and you know anybody can really manage that but when you're out in the wild you know fame becomes this sort of like third party entity and the irony is that you know i'm in the grocery store and i'm standing next to leonardo dicaprio looking at noodles and i'm the one giving a performance and I'm giving a really good performance, I think, because uh, I'm playing a guy who doesn't recognize Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm acting, and, and maybe so is he. So what I've realized, I think, is that, you know, there are procedures that seem to be in place with respect to fame, like behavioral protocols. And it's, it's kind of similar to the wilderness. Like if you encounter a mountain lion in the wild, you're supposed to kind of make yourself tall and make a lot of noise. And when you encounter a famous person in the wild, you're supposed to pretend like you don't even see them, which is completely absurd, uh, especially when you consider that these people have kind of worked their entire lives in an effort to be seen by as many people as possible. So, frankly, uh, the whole thing is really uncomfortable and sort of strange and interesting, Uh, much like being sick is uncomfortable and strange and maybe sort of interesting. And, uh, yeah, that's all I really have. Uh, I think we should get on with the show. Gail Stanwyck, uh, I love you. Thank you for giving such an iconic performance in Fletch. And uh, please know that I have a robust immune system.
0: Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories.
1: Um, so how are you? Everything's good? Yeah,
2: everything's fantastic. Yeah? Yeah. Why? Um. Well, I guess I'm writing and that makes me happy.
1: Okay, when you're working on a novel?
2: I'm wor- it's working on me, but I feel, like I, feel <laughs> like I just had like a breakthrough. Like nothing happened, but just I feel like something just clicked emotionally with the book.
1: That's good. It's like a creative breakthrough.
2: Yep, I'm so happy. Because, no. you know, every every book, you always fear that it might be the last one. So when you feel another one has revealed itself to you, you just feel so grateful.
1: Now, but do you ever fool yourself? Like Because I, 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 I sometimes have those days where I'll be like, this is this is the best thing I've ever written. It's ingenious. And then, like, I'll wake up the next day and reread it, and I'll be like, what was I thinking?
2: <laughs> yes, but you didn't fool yourself to that you were having the experience. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But you know, but th- do you ever do you ever like reread it the next day and and question your sanity or do you? F-
2: you know what? It's like romance. You know, it's like being in a bad romance. It <laughs> still had something about it that made you want to do it anyway. Yeah. And I think it's just like that, really. And sometimes it's a good romance, sometimes it's a bad romance, but it's all
1: thrilling. And so, but to you know, today the 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 particular book that you're working on, you feel like this is a good romance. That you're in a good relationship with your book.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think I I feel like it really cares about me. It does. (laughs) (laughs) I think it wants to
1: commit. It's a very sensitive story and uh, very considerate.
2: It understands me, you know. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. It's always nice when that happens. So. Uh, I don't know uh, you know uh, a whole lot about you and I want to I guess start with you know where you're from. You're from Atlanta?
2: Yes, I am. Born and raised.
1: Okay, so tell me about that. And and uh, you know I should also say like one of the things I really want to ask you about uh is the uh child murders in Atlanta in 79 to 81 because I was is, is that and I think those are the years but Yes, I, those I was, are the years. I was reading uh you know your bio And 79 to 81, I would have been like four and five years old. So I wasn't wasn't quite tuned in at that point. Uh, And I read about that, uh, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, how have I, you know, I think I've heard heard about that. But it's just, you know, it's buried somewhere in my brain. And it's a pretty extraordinary story. And to grow up, uh, uh, you know, amid that must have been, you know, really impactful when you were young.
2: Oh, yes. I mean, no doubt. I mean, Atlanta... Atlanta, during 1979, Atlanta was thought to be kind of like the black Mecca. Um, You had like the only city in the country that had a black mayor. Black school board president, black police chief. You know, my dad used to say, "Oh, we've got black everything down here," <laughs> and that's why he commute. That's why he moved from um, a small town, Louisiana. He moved to Atlanta to take part in the everything. There are five historically black colleges in Atlanta, and so my uncles, like everyone in the family, moved to Atlanta because it was like the promised land. And then there were these murders where ultimately about 30 African American children were were killed and I say about 30 because different people argue about what the actual number was but the official number I think is 28 and it completely changed everything in our parents as as a child actually I think that I was not nearly I was not as impacted as much as our parents because for our parents it felt like a kind of post civil rights defeat yeah but as a kid it was just um it was just something that affected the way we came of age i was about 10 years old and what i took away my takeaway from the child murders was that some children were way more vulnerable than others and that i was as a middle class child with you know two parents and a lot of supervision that i was safer than other children but i had done nothing to deserve that safety. So I think what it taught me was about privilege.
1: Oh, that's interesting. That's actually a pretty deep, that's actually a pretty deep read on it. And you had that understanding as a kid?
2: Well, it was very clear. Like, yeah, I mean, it was very clear where the children who were murdered lived Right. and right. I didn't live there.
1: Okay. Yeah, that and sense.
2: I, and I was old enough to know that I live where I live, not because of anything that I did. You know, I don't pay bills. Right. And that's what I learned. I, I, I went, of age understanding something about privilege. I think that we, and that was one thing in writing Leaving Atlanta, all the characters in my first novel are children. And I think the thing that I learned is that children are just as complex as adults, that you are essentially the same person as a child that you are now. You're still the same you.
1: I think so too. I think so too. Like uh, I I was just talking about this uh, not too long ago. You know, like there, there are certain, I mean, obviously you change over time, but there are certain uh, major components to your personality that if you you know stop and kind of trace them back're we're, we're sort of always there.
2: Oh, yes, or when you see your old friends, I saw an old a girlfriend that I hadn't seen in a long time, but we were children together, and she's the same.
1: exactly. okay, I mean, yeah, because that's weird too, is that you know you can with certain people, especially if you were close friends as a child, you know, you lose touch with with people. Or you don't talk to them as much as you, you used to because you live in different places and you've gotten busy with you know work and family or whatever, and then uh, but then you you see them again and and a good amount of time has elapsed but you kind of pick up right where you left off. I love when that happens. Or I love, and,
2: and I think that's important when you write child characters is to not put them in the box of a child and make them limited in terms of the possibility of what they can know and understand. And just remember that children are people i mean you know they say kids are people too but kids are full characters too
1: yeah yeah and i I, I totally agree uh but do you ever find because i find this sometimes uh in you know books that are narrated by children that uh there's all you know oftentimes kind of like this precociousness and this like wise beyond their years uh you know uh perception that I don't know. I, I understand its function in storytelling, but sometimes it can frustrate me because I feel like, you know, God, when I was 15, I was just an idiot. And like this young 15 year old narrator can like see the world with like, you know, the eyes of like an 85 year old like shaman. you
2: know. Yeah, that's just bad writing, though. Like it's, yeah. it's I think with any voice, you know, you go for authenticity and voice because you also see child characters written poorly in the opposite direction. They're like too naive by half.
1: So do you, I mean, yeah, that's true, too. I mean, it's just, it's hard to do. And uh, what, you know, what, aside from, you know, just making sure that the char- the child characters themselves are fully fleshed out and, and aren't necessarily uh, limited, they're not two-dimensional, like, what are the other things that you did? Like, did you hang out with kids? Do you have children? Or, you know, do you know what I'm I saying?
2: Think, well, I think the hanging out with children actually is not that good idea, not that good of an idea if you're writing about children of another era. Being a kid now and being a kid in 1978 is not the same thing.
1: How so? I, Meg, it's like just different times, totally. Different
2: times. Technology, for example. Yeah. My I mean, this is this is a small example, but when I was a child, I did not have re- ready access to telephones. The telephone was in the house. It, couldn't, it wasn't mobile, and it was in a certain room. I didn't have a, t- a phone in my room when I was a little girl. So if I wanted to use the phone, I would have to be... Like in front of people, right. that changes your entire experience of communication,
1: right, and you like speaking in code and under your breath,
2: <laughs> right exactly all this you can 't talk after nine o 'clock or something, uh-huh. but I think the key is what i call I call it a kidscape when you write young characters, because even in my new novel, Silver Sparrow, a lot of it takes place when the characters are very young, and I think the key of writing. Child characters is to remember that writing about children is like writing about people who live in another country. And by this, I mean this. Hear me out.
1: Okay.
2: Children, like it's, first off, imagine that you're, you yourself lived in this other country for 15 years, so you're Totally capable of writing it. You used to live there. So have that confidence when you write. But children, like another culture, you know how like another culture has its own language. Children do have a unique way of speaking, right? They have their own, they have lingo. Sure. They have their own garb. No one else dresses like that. They have their own cuisine. Nobody else eats that many chicken nuggets. You know, like they have its, its own thing. And the thing also to remember about writing about children is that all children, like another country, all children live at the mercy of a regime, the regime of adults.
1: Wow. This is making a and lot if you of have, sense.
2: And if you have all those features working at once, you will have a believable kidscape and believable child voice.
1: Wow. That, yeah, that's a great way. Of, that's a great way of approaching it. How did you come to that? I mean, is this something that you feel like was born out of just trial and error, or did you have like a mentor or some sort of, you know, someone?
2: Well, to- when I wrote when I wrote my first novel, Leaving Atlanta, when I was in when I was in graduate school, it was my MFA book. And I did have the, um, the wonderful gift of working with Ron Carlson, who taught me a lot about writing. But what he also taught me was to be kind of self-conscious about what I'm doing, how to simultaneously lose yourself to the story, but be able to pay attention to how you're doing it so you can do it again at a later date. And that's when I started coming up with how it was that I was writing these young characters, because I started off doing it just quite naturally. I just have a, a knack for that. But I started becoming aware of what I was doing as I was doing it.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, and okay. So, you know, because you, you, you write about what you write about. When, when you're working creatively, it's, you know, there's some element of choice involved. But, you know, it's kind of like what comes up what co- is what comes up. and
2: Yes, but revision is all choice, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, when, when you talk about ch- uh, children, you know, you're writing with uh, child characters uh, and having a natural inclination to that, uh, you know, creatively. Do you think that's because I mean, did you? It seems like you had a particularly vivid childhood. Like I mean, you you seem to feel really connected to place. I mean, you feel really connected to the place of your youth in Atlanta. Um, But you know, can you explain that? Do you have that understanding of yourself? Why you tend to lean that way creatively, and why these characters tend to appear in your books at this age?
2: Well, I do know that well, with the first one with with the child murders, that was, I think a lot of people's first novel is a coming of age story. So that's not terribly unusual. What is unusual that I had the backdrop of these, you know, this huge, you know, serial killing as the backdrop and that kind of made me lean toward young characters. And I think I'm not the first person to write a novel about these Murders, you know, Tony K. Bombara's last book was called Those Bones Are Not My Child, which is about the mother of a missing child. And then, although not fiction, James Baldwin wrote The Evidence of Things Not Seen about these murders. But I think the child murders really were a generational story, that the vantage point of children was where, in my opinion, that story can be really felt for what it meant for a generation. So I think that one was kind of natural but then when I kept writing and I kept these young characters kept coming up to me I think that was more I think really that part of it is um me my reflections on my own childhood and precocity I was I was ahead of my peers I was in first grade when I was 4 I was in college when I was 16 I was working on a PhD when I was 20 Jesus and Are you a gen- I, Are you a uh,
0: genius? Are you-
2: no, I have ambitious parents. <laughs> <laughs>
1: your par- your I think, parents are geniuses.
2: Well, I, yeah, I think that's what precocity really is about. It's about parental ambition. And, and it, if you're in a situation where you're so much younger than everyone else, it makes you think a lot about your own devel- developmental processes. You think about it a lot because you're always aware of it. And even though now that I'm much older, if I'm two years younger than my peers, it means nothing at my age. You know, it means nothing now. But it was something that was such a huge factor of my of my growing up, the fact that I was younger.
1: Yeah, I mean, like when you're like in fourth grade and, you know, you're you're the, the age of a, what, second grader? Is that right?
2: Yeah, it's a big deal.
1: That's a big deal. I remember there was a kid in my sixth grade class. I remember his name, which is big for me because I remember almost nothing. But his name was Matt Ball. And I remember he was, you know, in my sixth grade class, there was like this, you know, like seven-year-old kid or whatever. <laughs> I just, you know he he was like he was extremely intelligent and there was a reason why he was there but he was still you know younger.
2: Yeah, I don't know. if I would I don't have children but I think if I had children I don't know if I would recommend that route for other people. I mean I don't feel scarred by it and I feel that going to Spelman College in Atlanta was the best thing that ever happened to me and I feel very grateful that I got there as early as I did.
0: Why but was it, why said,
2: was it the
1: best thing? Why was it the best thing that ever happened to you? I mean, what was well, it about Spel- Spelman?
2: Well, you know, it's um, African American Women's College, and it was the first place I got, you know, the value of of women's education. You know, like you hear people who were students at the Seven Sisters saying how, just how empowered they felt being at a women's college. Well, that's what happened to me um, at Spelman. It was the first place I'd ever been where I felt encouraged to think kind of undisciplined thoughts and that I could be a creative writer if I wanted to, that I could be anything if I wanted to, that my mind was for my own betterment, not just as evidence of something for someone else, that this, my thoughts were my own and that they were fascinating. That's what I learned in college.
1: So it's not, yeah, it's like higher education performing its actual highest function. <laughs> you know,
2: like. yeah, yeah, I mean, I felt like it just... I'll never I just feel like I'm a different person. I feel like my parents sent me to college and they never got their kid back.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that, isn't that funny though that because I mean that was their ambition, I'm assuming or at least part of their ambition for you. And uh and then it happens and it has maybe unintended consequences, you know. <laughs> Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like you know like oh wait, so that means that you're you're gone and you're going to head off in this direction. Okay, you know, just with your own wild thoughts. Right. So, okay. So what kind of kid were you? I mean, you're, you're younger than all of your peers. You're obviously bright and you're, um, I assume you were a good student. And so, but like socially, like, we're, and then, uh, you know, in terms of your family, like, were you uh, kind of a, a wild kid or were you pretty, uh, you know, good kid or?
2: Oh, I was a completely good kid. I was, I was what I often refer to as, I was like an invisible girl. I was younger than everyone else. I was considered, you know, I was bright. But I think that when I think that when girls do their homework it's seen as you being nice because if you're doing your homework you're not chasing boys. Right. It's really different than thought of being like I never thought of myself as a prodigy or anything like that because I was never treated that way. I always I felt kind of in many times that my youth was like a almost like a physical characteristic like being short or being you know, having red hair. I didn't understand I wasn't made to understand myself as being extraordinary in any way.
1: So your parents didn't say anything like, I, I mean, I seemed you know, or the, you're, I
2: know it's, it's a, it's a, it's like a kind of a, it's an odd thing, isn't it? For me to have been so young when I was a really little girl, like a little girl, like when I was the four year old first grader, I felt very special about it. But you know, there are all these studies about girls and how the way they understand themselves changes when they hit puberty.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, what, is, and what happens then?
2: well that they just become more thinking of themselves as to how they fit in socially how how they think they look you know like it's just a whole different thing you know there's been so many studies on that so i was just kind of an invisible kid i was younger than everyone else you know which means that i w- and i wasn't a mature looking kid so i was a person that looked like a kid among high schoolers that looked like high schoolers
1: right well yeah I and mean, like i remember when i was i mean especially when i look back on photos but when i was a freshman and I looked at seniors like it was like they were adults, and,
2: right? And and I, was, and
1: I wasn't. Yeah, I mean, and then it must have been doubly so for you because I mean, if I was a what a fourteen or fifteen year old freshman, is that the age that you were then? then you,
2: yeah, but boys are always are shrimps yeah, for a right. long time. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no, <laughs> no idea. But,
2: but I always wrote. I wrote my whole life. I wrote when I was a little girl. I always wanted to write, but I never thought it could be a life for me. Um, I thought that it was just something I did. It was kind of an extension of reading a lot. You know, when girls read a lot, it's seen not that you are necessarily thirsty for knowledge, but it's just kind of an extension of being a good girl. Yeah. You know how Chris Rock has this joke that I hate, that Chris Rock says, as a father what you want from your daughter all you want from your daughter is to keep her off the pole you oh, know yeah. I meaning the stripper pole yeah, yeah, yeah. and and i think though that that's in a way kind of true that that many times is the ideal for girls is that they not be in trouble they not be bad they not you know act out and that's that's when you know you have a good daughter but that doesn't do anything for your mind you know just so i wrote but no one was saying what are you thinking about what are you writing about it was like oh she's a nice girl she's over there with her pencil.
1: That's cute. She's writing about strippers. Who knew?
2: Yeah, I know, right? But they're like, that's cute. That's chaste. We like it.
1: (laughs) So, uh, So what kind of, you know, when you were a kid, what were you reading? I mean, you were reading above your grade level, obviously, but were there books that really like set you on your course that you can remember?
2: I loved East of Eden by John Steinbeck. I thought that was the best book
1: ever. That was it. Oh, my God, it was so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, no, it's, like, it's, it's always interesting. Like, and, and, I mean, was there anything from when you were younger? Like, did you have a favorite book as, like, a really young girl?
2: When I was a really little kid, I really loved this book called Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. Oh, my goodness, that thing turned me out.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I had, like, similar experiences, like, where, like, I remember, like, Shel Silverstein was huge for me, and uh, I remember hiding that book in the library at my elementary school. The so- Giving Tree? Uh, That one, but also where the sidewalk ends Um, and all that stuff. I thought the
2: giving tree, that disturbed me. I felt so bad for the tree. (laughs) It's like a horrible story.
1: I had actually, there was something on uh, the Nervous Breakdown, uh, my lit site recently about uh, author photos and uh, how they never turn out well or something. But, you know, someone... Pointed out and you know Shel Silverstein's author photo and just how creepy it was back in the
2: day. Yes, it is. I looked at it. I had reason to look at it recently, actually.
1: Yeah, I just I I forgot about that, but I do remember as a kid being like, you know, this is really funny stuff, and you know, I really like it. But that guy looks really scary, you know.
2: I was a big Judy Bloom fan as a kid. Huge Judy Bloom
1: fan. Me too. Me too. Like Freckle Juice and uh, Dear Mister. Tales
2: of Did you know this is the 40th anniversary of Tales of Fourth Grade Nothing?
1: Wow. Yeah, I mean, all those books all those were books. very big for me. I remember, you know, that, that's another one. I, I kind of don't give Judy a, a, enough credit. I read all those books.
2: Well, I am, you know, I'm on Team Judy Bloom in general, as but also because you know she introduced me to the to my publisher.
1: No, no kidding. You so you know Judy.
2: I do now. I met her quite. I mean, this was like just the gift of my life. I call her my fairy godmother. I was at, I gave a reading and she enjoyed the reading, and she knew that I was in need of a publisher for my new book. And she put my hand in the hand of the publisher of Algonquin and said, you should take a look at her.
0: No kidding.
2: I could have passed out because I didn't know who she was. I thought she was just a kind stranger.
1: No, okay, so wait a minute. Let's, let's paint this picture a little bit. Like Where, where, was, this, <laughs> where was this reading and why was Judy Bloom at your reading?
2: Well, she was, it was a little festival, it was the Key West Literary Festival, and she lives there. And I was giving a reading, and she just walked up to me, and she said, oh, I heard that you don't have a publisher. And I was embarrassed that people were talking about I don't have a publisher, right? (laughs) That's embarrassing. And she, But she didn't identify herself, and she took me by the hand, and she put my hand in the hand of Elizabeth Charlotte, the publisher of Algonquin. And the rest, as they say, is history. I wow. Couldn't believe it,
1: so what was she? I mean, was she if i want her i want I want her to have been dressed in some sort of fairy godmother outfit, but it was oh
2: no, no, she's just very stylish, very stylish woman. she, she is. looked great oh. mhm, very she's on twitter she is mm, at Judy Bloom, yes,
1: all right, follow Judy Bloom,
2: but I mean that was such a gift, I mean she kind of changed the the way things were going for me at that time,
1: well, no, and like this, okay, so this is this brings up a good point because uh. You know, there's no, there's nobody in life. But I think, in particularly in creative life, I don't care who you are or what your background is, uh, whether it was a hard scrabble background or a middle class background, or you're like super lucky. uh, Nobody gets uh, to where they are in, in a creative pursuit without help. You know what I'm saying? like, Or without some sort of good fortune, whether it's the, the good fortune in the in the form of somebody like Judy Bloom just happening to be at your reading and, and being generous enough to introduce you to her, you know, to a publisher or somebody, you know, nominating you for a grant or, you know, there's a million different forms that it can take. But it just – nobody ever gets where they're going entirely on their own. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh,
2: no doubt. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's like – and I, I like especially when I read literary history, like I'm always fascinated. You know, when you see – how, uh, you know, really prominent writers got to where they wound up. And, uh, you know, you read about their, especially their younger years when they were coming up as writers and there was almost always, you know, some extraordinary stroke of luck or somebody who was championing them in a high place. And, you know, that's how it happens.
2: It's how it happens. And you just have to be ready though. I tell my students, this is what I tell my students though. I tell my students, I say, you know what? You can rescue Oprah from a burning building, but if your book isn't finished, she can't help you. So you have to be ready for when these good things happen.
1: Right, right.
2: I, I know so many young people who spend so much time trying to arrange to be helped, but they haven't done their work.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's funny. Like I remember that from you know I remember it from teaching, but I also remember it from being in grad school and getting my MFA. Like there were so many students in the program, or there were a handful of students in the program who were like preparing for all the trappings of success without actually doing the writing work. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes.
2: Yes. And they want to know how do I meet people? How do I put myself out there?
1: Yeah. It's like, how do I get an agent? And I need a, you know, an author website and all this stuff. And it's like, you don't even have your manuscript on, you know, like cart before the horse. Yes, Exactly. Um, okay. So, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier that I want to uh, ask you about real, you know, real quick, just on a personal level is, is you said that your dad was from small town, Louisiana, correct? Mm-hmm. Where, my, yes. my extended family's from Louisiana. I'm just curious where. Oakdale. Where's that?
2: <laughs> it's in the northern part of louisiana it's a part of louisiana that feels a lot like mississippi nobody writes romantic novels about that part of louisiana
1: okay so it's like north okay northern louisiana my my folks are from south louisiana but well, baton rouge and then uh...
2: yeah well we're about two hours from baton rouge
1: okay okay yeah well i just i have louisiana roots or you know so um and then the, but most of your extended family is from louisiana and then moved to atlanta though Well,
2: some of them. My dad had 10 siblings, so Uncle Carl and Uncle Clifton came to Atlanta, and I really think that one other uncle was there for a while.
1: Okay. And then what about in your, you know, another thing that that stood out to me in your bio is the, uh, you spent a year in Nigeria as a child? Yeah, my dad had a Fulbright. Oh, wow. Okay. So tell me about that. That must have been an amazing year. How old were you when that happened?
2: I was about 12. It was my ninth grade year. Um, yeah, I was there for a year. I went to, I went to public and I went to private school, but you know, I went to, I went to school. Like my brother was, did correspondence courses at home, my older brother, but yeah, no, I went to school and I tell you, I learned a lot. I came back and aced my AP exams because the curriculum was just so rigorous. Really? So, oh yeah.
1: So where, were they don't you, play. Yeah. Where, where were you living?
2: We were in the northern part of Nigeria. We were in Kaduna State, and I was at the school for kids whose parents were affiliated with the university.
1: Okay, okay. And your dad was on a Fulbright uh, doing—
2: Political science. Political Um, science. He's he's a political scientist. But, I mean, I just learned so much, like all the subjects that they teach— Geography, for example, they teach geography intensely, and I learned—I mean, I learned things that I knew nothing about in my American school.
1: Like where Nigeria is, you know, like stuff like that.
2: Like how different kinds of lakes come from, you know, different kind, How different kinds of lakes are formed from rivers, and I—you have to draw all these. Um, like you have to do a lot of drawing. You have to draw all these diagrams. You have to know how to do them by heart. It's a lot of rote learning. You take a, your notebook is inspected to make sure your notebook should look like a textbook.
1: Wow. See that's a yeah. Thing, I thought I, mean, I thought a, that was totally unreasonable, but it worked. Well, no. I mean, like, first of all, rote learning and just like having to actually memorize stuff and really under like geography, just as such a great example of like something that seems like it should be so foundational, but is so undertaught. You know, just like knowing your world a little bit better. You know, it's like you you read those stories and those statistics about you know like seventy five percent of Americans can't find like. Washington State on a map, or something like that. Just, <laughs>
2: right, and we did world, and we did world studies in Nigeria. We studied the world. We did like in America, we studied so much like American history, but we studied all kinds of things. Like I learned, I really, I learned so much that even to this day, I draw on what I learned when I studied in Nigeria, and I was just in the ninth grade.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, like I, you know, my wife and I talk about, um, you know, we would love to do a year abroad with, uh, you know, our daughter. Like it's just as a as a life experience and an educational experience and like, you know, classroom stuff aside, just the, just the, the year of being in in a totally different culture and being outside of your comfort zone, like that must've been formative.
2: Yes. And you know, but when you're, when you're a young person, very often you can get in a new comfort zone pretty quickly.
1: Even in ninth grade, even in ninth grade, like it wasn't like there, you weren't freaked out or anything.
2: I mean, I was really angry with my parents for uprooting me from my high school life just when I thought I had a chance to be normal. Then now I was the kid that was going to live in Africa. I was like, Really, like <laughs> do you really think that I I need this right now? Right. But one, but one thing that I got really into and it has and I've stayed into it all my life is I became an avid letter writer. I would write letters to my friends every day. My friends back home. That's like was a, yeah, a
1: teenage thing to do too, you know, you want to keep in touch and
2: Yes, and it's part of the culture there, too, that everyone is always writing letters. At lunchtime, the kids were writing letters to their friends who lived wherever, and then the mail person would come and pick up the mail, and then later on in the day, the mail would be delivered, and everyone was anxious for mail delivery.
1: See, this is, okay, this brings, because I'm a a big, uh, I write a lot of postcards, uh, and I write letters, but I I tend to do more email than, like, long-form letters, but... I do write postcards because, and I call them like old school text messages, just because. <laughs> That's cute. Yeah, but you know, it's like they're quick, but they're personal, and I can fire them off and drop them in the mail. And I just think that getting some form of like handwritten correspondence in the mail is like the most underrated form of entertainment out there. Like it's just, it's a shame that people don't do more of it. I mean, I I love getting something in the mail, you know.
2: Well, I'll send you a letter because I write letters in the morning to to warm up. My book calisthenics and I'm getting ready to write. I type letters on my typewriter.
1: Yeah, no, I do. You know, that's exactly. I mean, as a warm-up exercise, I think it's great. There's something sort of freeing about it, and uh, and it's just. And, and I also think that you know, because you can sit there and warm up any number of ways. You can like do a free writing exercise, or you can, you know, try to recall some memory or something. But when you're writing a letter to somebody. I, I like it because it feels like you're doing something productive at the same time that you're warming up. Do you know what I'm saying? I could say.
2: And you get mail back.
1: right? Well, hopefully. But I see, I have so many friends who are like, oh, thanks so much for the letter. And it's like a text message.
2: Oh, you need some new friends. <laughs> yeah. <right?
1: laughs> so who's your, I mean, do you mind me asking? Do you have like favorite pen pals?
2: My favorite pen pal is um, a writer named Pearl Clegg. Who was my she was my teacher in undergrad, but now we've just become good friends, and we have pen pals strong for twenty years now.
1: So I'm already seeing like the collected letters. I can see this this is this is going to happen.
2: You know, it's so funny. I was talking to her, and she was saying that she had sold her papers to Emory University, and my heart started beating. I was like, what are the implications of that for me?
1: Right.
2: And it, just imagine the letters I've sent to her over the last twenty years. She was the one who wrote to me and told me that I could quit graduate school the first time.
1: Okay, so wait, you quit graduate school?
2: I quit graduate school a couple times. Yes, I was um, doing a Ph.D. at the University of Iowa in 1991, 1992, in that time. And I was doing a Ph.D. in literature, and I just hated it so much. But I was always told, you finish what you start. And I was just so unhappy. And I wrote her this long letter about how unhappy I was and all this. And it was long, like maybe three pages, single space. And she sent me back a postcard and said, quit. Don't feel guilty. It's your life. Wow. And I felt like, oh, you're right. It is my life. So
1: why did you hate it so much?
2: First off, I mean, I was studying for a degree in literature, and I'm a, I'm a writer. You know, like Saul Bellow said, I'm a bird, not an ornithologist.
0: Right, right.
2: So I just, you know, wasn't doing my thing. And, I mean, I hated Iowa. I hated I'm, – I'm from Atlanta, and I was living in Iowa.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a change.
2: Yeah, so no, I just had to get out of there.
1: Okay, and how old were you then?
2: I was 20 when I went and 23 probably when I quit.
1: God. So And you were working on a Ph.D. Okay, okay. so you quit and then what?
2: Then I went and I taught um, developmental reading to adults in Texas for a couple years, a couple, three years. Um, decided to write a novel. I bought a laptop computer. It was like the first laptop ever invented. It weighed like 17 pounds. <laughs> and I was very proud of it. And then I um, applied to it. the novel, of course, was no good, as you can imagine, which is not I feel I don't feel troubled about it. It's funny, I wrote it, I sent it to an agent, the agent didn't want it, and that was the end. I'm so grateful that I didn't stick with it because it wasn't good. But anyway, I went to the University of Georgia to do a PhD in creative writing, you know, those kind of programs. Sure. And I was in that program for about six months and when I was there they sent me to AWP whereupon I met a woman who ran the MFA program at Arizona State and she said you should drop the PhD, get an MFA, I'll help you, I'll mentor you, you need to tell me in a week. Wow. And I said, oh, no, ma'am, I can't move to Arizona. I said, it's hot out there, and besides, they don't have the King holiday.
0: <laughs>
2: right. And she says, actually, there has been a voter referendum. And I said, oh, who knew? And then I moved out there.
1: And that was it. So Iowa to Georgia to Arizona State, but you, and, at, and at Arizona State, you stuck.
2: At Arizona State, I stuck, and I wrote *Leaving Atlanta*.
1: Okay, and that was like a two-year program.
2: It was a three-year program, but I, um, I, I got the book contract after I had been there about a year and a half. I finished the book,
1: and so I decided to finish in two years. So you must have been like, the, look at you, and you, you must have been like kind of a hot shot at school. If you, you know, if you're in the middle of your MFA and you sell a book, right?
2: Well, you know what? It wasn't really that kind of culture at Arizona State. I, did, I was the only one you know, to whom this happened, but I was not a hot shot. no.
1: You weren't. Okay. I feel like that. I mean, I don't know. I feel like everybody is sort of, whenever somebody's book sells, it's kind of like the, the orphan who got adopted or something. You know, like.
2: Well, you know, it, I suppose it was like that. But the culture, like Ron Carlson, who Ron was, you know, every program has a teacher that everyone wants to work with. Ron Carlson would never talk business with you. Why not? He was all, he was all about the work. He just wasn't. Ron's not going to talk business with you.
1: you and, Ron will. And, and just just to make sure I'm clear, I'm sorry if I missed this, but he was a, he was running the program there.
2: He was. Um, well, the year I came, he wasn't the director. He was just, but he had run it in the past. But he just that's just not what Ron does. <laughs> Ron helps you revise.
1: Right. Okay. But okay. So let me ask you though, because this is you know this is a, a facet of um, MFA programs that you know, there's some debate about, and it's like, do you know how much of the business of writing should be taught, you know, and how much should that be addressed in a classroom? Because if it's all aesthetic, I feel like sometimes, you know, students go through the program and they go through two years, um, and it's rigorous and it's productive, but then they get out and, you know, the business of writing and publishing is, is completely, you know, is a kind of a complete mystery. And especially in these times where things are changing so rapidly, Do you feel like, uh, you know, a, a creative writing education should include that, or do you think it's just separate and needs to be addressed by the individual?
2: Well, what I tell my students is that when you have a manuscript, we can talk about publishing because I have never, ever gotten any advice about the business side of writing that has helped me write. As a matter of fact, anything I hear about the business side makes me freeze up and become worried and anxious yeah, no right. one has ever – yeah, no one has ever said anything about publishing that made me say, oh, yeah, let me go sit down and write. Yeah,
1: that's going to inspire me, yeah. You need I mean a,
2: this is – You need one, a platform.
1: You need a platform. This is,
2: yeah, I know. You're, then you're like, oh, no, where's my platform? Well, this is one thing Ron said to me because after I got my book um, finished and out, I stayed around in Arizona because I had bought this condo. It used to be really cheap to live in Phoenix. And like really cheap. So I stayed there because I could live off my advance for a long time because my, my mortgage was like $312. Oh, man. Just to give you a sense, because usually when I tell people I bought a condo, they get a different idea about how I was living. But it was, you know, it was a great life for me. And I, I decided that I wanted to get a book contract for the second book halfway through because I just wanted one. And so I said, Ron, I am still really excited about my work. He says, great. I was like, you know, and it's. he said, is it coming along? I said, yes. He said, are the characters, do they feel vivid to you? Yes. I said, do you have good momentum? I said, yes. He says, so why do you want to involve the business side? And I said, because I want to get a book contract because, you know, this, is, this was in the early 2000s when people were getting these huge contracts. And he said to me, finish your book. The next step is to finish the book. If you get a book contract, you have to finish the book. If you don't get a book contract, you have to finish the book. So just finish the book.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, and, you know, it's it's good advice. And I think, like, you know, my brain, I, I'm obviously engaged at a, a, a variety of levels, whether, you know, running a website and doing this show and then trying to write. And, you know, as far as the writing side of it goes, you know, and then when you're out there actually trying to make a living from your work and actually sell books – uh, it can be overwhelming and it can be, you know, I think it's a, it's like a, it's kind of a constant conversation and a, an immovable mystery as to how books sell. You know, I think there's some stuff that you can do to help the cause, but ultimately it's just word of mouth, uh, that moves books, you know, people reading something, loving it and then telling their friends about it. That seems to be kind of the, the central way that it's done. And if that's the case, if that's true, um, and even if it 's not true like if if the book isn 't good, what does it matter? So just focus on that, just be as good as you can possibly be, and the rest should take care of itself i mean I guess
2: and also, I am not even sure how much education you can get about the system anyway. You know, like people say you need to be educated about publishing. Like you said, it's changing so much. So what I would have learned in school is probably irrelevant now anyway.
1: Oh, God. And like, I mean, when I was in graduate school, and this is not an exaggeration, I would say a majority of the professors that I had were 65 or older. It was like the AARP, you know, for whatever reason, a lot of the teachers had just been there a long time. And, you know, when they went out to get agents, it was like 1955. You know?
2: Yeah, things Yeah, things are just so different. And also, I mean, I believe that, I don't know, I'm people probably I'm a little self-conscious about saying that people shouldn't worry so much about the business side because it makes me feel like a, it makes me feel like I sound like a privileged person saying, oh, it's all about the art and no one should worry about eating. But I think I just I'm not sure how much you can control those other factors anyway. So I think that being obsessed with the business side of things, by and large, doesn't get you anywhere anyway. So you might as well write a better book.
1: Yeah. Well. Yeah. Exactly. And well, it can make you freeze up. But I mean, at the same time, because um, you do have to kind of parse it. It's like if you focus on that stuff too much, it can have a detrimental effect on your creative output. And your mood. <laughs> uh,
2: and also, just does it work? I'm not convinced that it works. I meet people who are hustlers, and they're always trying to find an angle, but I'm just not... For most of them, it doesn't even work. So, but improving your book works every time.
1: Yeah. I mean, the writing... Yeah. It's about being really, really good and writing books that really connect with people. But you know, there is also kind of... I mean, when you publish a book, you do... book tour correct or you're out there doing some promotional stuff
2: i know i did 50 cities you know
1: oh we'll see so you're (laughs) yeah so i mean that that part of it is still there and you know i think you you know you, you do whatever you can to fight for your books you know i think every writer who goes through the hassle of writing a book and getting it published you know when that happens like the way that i've always sort of uh analogized it is to say you know it's It's like having a kid and the kid goes off to school for the first day, and you just don't want him to get beat up on the playground kind of thing you know so you you want to protect it, you know, and you want to do whatever you can to make sure that it's uh that it has a good chance you, do you know
2: but nobody can teach you, but no one can teach you that that's something you really that's on the job training, no one can teach you that
1: yeah and and you know what you do it instinctively, you know like once the book is out there, then all of a sudden it becomes. Uh, sort of second nature to do whatever you can and, and you know, 50 cities. I mean, how how many yeah. uh, how many weeks did that unfold over? Was that like a...
2: It's kind of still going on. I just got back um, from San Diego yesterday. I've been on the road pretty much since... Um, I have a great... Pub- Algonquin is an amazing publisher. I've been on the road since... I think we kicked it off with the LA Book Festival in April.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, Algon- I hear nothing but great things about Algonquin. And I actually work with... Uh, Algonquin authors and with Michael Tackens and I believe that's how you pronounce his last name but uh, they, they're wonderful to work with and I you know the authors that I know that are published there just sort of like rave about them uniformly.
2: Yeah I mean I feel that I feel that we have done for Silver Sparrow everything that they could think of. I feel like they they threw everything. They put everything behind this book. I have a fantastic team, and I feel like things, you know, went really well. But I also have a um, a personal publicist, a freelance publicist that I work with as well.
1: And who is? Do you mind saying who that is?
2: Um, Lauren Sarand.
1: Oh, okay. So, okay. So you work with Lauren? Yeah. No, I know Lauren. And
2: what? Do you We've th- been together a long time. We've been together since 05.
1: Oh wow. Okay. So yeah. So like, do you think that? Uh, I mean, is that something you recommend uh, to? authors who are trying to figure out how to get the word out about their book? Do you think that having, I mean, obviously having both can't hurt, but I mean, do you feel like having a personal publicist is an advisable thing?
2: I think if you have a good one, I mean, I really think it's about finding the personal publicist that's a good fit for you. If you have one that's not a good, it's like, it's like having a husband or something like if you have a good husband, it's a good thing. If you have a bad husband, it's a bad thing.
1: Right. Well, how did you meet Lauren?
2: Um, someone referred me to Lauren years ago when I was working on my when I had just finished my second book and I sent her a copy of my book and I wrote her it's so funny I wrote her this earnest little letter about writing and why I write and what I want and she wrote me back an earnest letter about why she wants to help writers and you know it was like love at first letter exchange for us but it was that we had the same you know we had the same kind of ideas about why I wanted this story out there and I think that's the key, that you really need to feel a personal connection with your personal publicist and you're on the same page. Like I feel that Lauren and I are partners in this.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, And then, you know, when you do a publicity cycle for a book, is there – do you have like – I mean, I feel like a lot of writers, especially in, you know, contemporary times, uh, you know, it's it, it can be kind of a full-time job uh, just promoting a book and doing all that needs to be done. Like when you publish a book, do you set – a period of time aside in your mind where you say okay for the next 6 months you know this is going to be the focus or are you you know are are you juggling or do you know what i'm saying i
2: think you have to know when to say when because there's always another hoop you can jump through to try to help your book you you can set aside a period of time i knew i was going to devote the summer to promoting silver sparrow but now i'm at the radcliffe institute on a fellowship and i don't want to burn up my radcliffe time trying to hustle my book
1: yeah So,
2: you know, Lauren and I decided we were just going to dial it down, and so that's what I've done. I've had to pass up some opportunities that look really good, but I just need this time. And also, you're just a human being. You can only do so much, and that's another thing. You just have to decide how much energy you have and also be able to enjoy your life. You don't want to promote so hard that you don't enjoy your life
1: or that you're like, you know, obsessively checking your Amazon ranking, you know?
2: Oh God, I never, I never look at, I never, I never look at that. But I think just you just want to enjoy your life and be able to enjoy the success that you have. It's very easy to be so busy looking at the next thing. What's the next thing I can do? What's the next thing I can get? And not be able to take a moment and tell yourself, wow, this went really well. And just feel Just, you know, take a minute and feel satisfied, which is not the same as resting on your laurels, but it's just about being able to take some pleasure in what you've accomplished.
1: Well, no, I used to, I used to always say that to my creative writing students. It was like, you know, if you finish a manuscript, even if it's a first draft or you finish a third draft or you get published or you find an agent, like if something, you know, of significance happens in your writing career, I always tell them like, you know, go out to a nice dinner or, you know, have a nice, uh, Glass of wine, or just mark the moment somehow, because especially when you're writing long form fiction, those moments don't come around all the time. You know, there, there can be long periods where you don't have one of those uh, victories. And when you do have them, if you don't mark them, it's sort of a shame, you know? <laughs> like,
2: I agree. I mean, I really completely agree with that. I mean, and that's something, though, interestingly enough, that I have had to teach myself how to take pleasure. Because, you know, as a writer, when you're starting out, you're so used to being like this incredible underdog that you forget how to how to even – you don't even know how to be satisfied.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because like, you're you
2: know, so used to being smacked down all the time.
1: Right. You I mean, exactly. You're great at taking punches, but then like you actually, you know, you actually win one and you don't even know how to deal with it.
2: <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what I've been um, – I've learned, I've learned how to, I feel like I've won one and I'm just enjoying that. It's been, this is going to sound crazy, but it's been such a challenge, but I'm, I'm happy.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, that's, that's, uh, that it's nice to know. It's nice to hear it said that that's possible for writers because writers are sort of pigeonholed as like morose and, uh, you know, gloomy or whatever, or just, uh, beleaguered.
2: Well, did I tell you about the typewriter doctor who repairs my typewriter? I think everybody should go to his shop. I feel like if anyone has the right to be morose and gloomy and be like, oh, you know, I'm doing something that's a dying art. You know how people are always telling you, oh, no one reads anymore, and the Kindle is going to drown you in the bathtub, you know? (laughs) Or if you're black, they're like, a racist Kindle is going to drown you in the bathtub, you know, and you just feel like, you know, things are against me. If anybody has the right to feel that way, it would be the typewriter repairman. Yeah. Yeah. But when I go to his shop, he is in such high spirits, and he has a blog. He types the blog post on the typewriter and scans it to have a blog.
1: Okay, so let's plug Let's plug this guy. Who's your typewriter repairman, and what's his blog? Do you know?
2: It's, it's Cambridge Typewriters. Okay. And I think his blog is called Life in a Typewriter Shop, and he takes pictures of the interesting typewriters he's working on, and he types the blog post on that typewriter. But the reason I think about him so much is because, I mean, that is a, he's the happiest person I know.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, I know. And
2: he's, his shop is always busy. He's full of people, and he just, he's doing what he loves. But he's adapted with the blog and other things. So that's what I like about him. He's doing what he loves, but also he doesn't have his head buried in the sand.
1: Well, no, it sounds like he's got the market cornered too. There can't be a lot of typewriter repair shops out there. So he's like, you know, he's sticking with it.
2: And he's just great. You have to go to his blog, Life in a Typewriter Shop.
1: Okay. I'll definitely check that out. And then uh, you said that you're a Radcliffe Fellow, so you're at Harvard. Is that right? I am. Okay. So how did that happen? I mean, that's fancy. I,
2: I applied.
0: Oh, you can apply <laughs> I for that.
2: Yes, the Radcliffe um, Institute fellowships are fantastic. There are 50 of us here, There's, but five of us are writers, which is considered a bumper crop this year. They're also four astrophysicists. But you just apply and you um, tell them what project you want to work on. And we're here for the entire academic year. We each are given a lovely office on Mondays and Tuesdays. We listen to lectures given by our fellow fellows. And otherwise, you basically just do your thing.
1: God, that sounds great.
2: It is great. It is this. It's so great. I can't tell you how how grateful I am for this opportunity.
1: Okay. So how and how how far into it are you at this point? Halfway. Halfway. I
2: I will be here until June fifteenth.
1: And then. But it's just
2: you know just being released from teaching. I'll go back to my real. I'll go back to my regular job in the fall.
1: At Rutgers, correct? At Rutgers, yes. Okay. And how do you like? And you like teaching?
2: I like teaching. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. I mean, it's just like, I feel I like, like a lot of writers do it and it's like, it's a good way, it's a great job because it's compatible with the writing life and that you have flexibility of schedule, at least to some extent and, and so on. But I think certain writers actually really like teaching more so than others. Whereas, you know, some writers, it's like, this is how I pay the bills, you know?
2: Well, you know, my parents are both professors. I grew up, you know, I grew up in that world. And also I like my students. I take my, I take mentorship very seriously and I just, I just like being around. I like to see their stories grow, their novels grow. It, it cheers me a lot.
1: Yeah. Well, there's like, yeah, like one of the things I used to say is that, you know, the student, first of all, being around uh, college students is just energizing period because it's such a good time in life. And you know, the, the world is kind of wide open or whatever. And then, um, but the other thing is that, uh, there can be a lot of like just really pure enthusiasm, uh, for writing and creativity. And there's all this, uh, there's often a lot of optimism, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think when you get into the professional realm or you get a bit older, uh, it's easy to sometimes get a little bit jaded and cynical and you know, when, then you walk into a classroom full of like 19 year olds and that can kind of evaporate all of a sudden.
2: It's true. I and I love I have graduate students and I have graduate students of all ages at Rutgers Newark. We go out of our way to recruit non-traditional students. It's nothing I love more than a graduate student that is in a second career that may be in their 50s or their 60s. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I used to have I had a couple of students that way too. Like I remember one guy in particular who was like, you know, retired and he's sitting there in the classroom among, you know, people ha like, you know, less than half his age or more than half his age, you know what I'm saying, um, mm-hmm. and uh, that was always fun. You know what I'm saying. That adds that adds something to it.
2: I, I, I love my students. I actually, talking about them, I miss
1: them. Yeah. Um, well, let's. I want to talk about Silver Sparrow before I let you go. Um, okay. You know, it deals with bigamy. and yes. And fam- and like family secrets and secrets in general. And I'm curious uh, to hear you talk about how. How did that happen? Like how did this particular story take root?
2: Well, I always I feel like I have said every day since April 15th that my father is not a bigamist.
1: Yeah, your dad must love this one, right? <laughs> He's
2: like, you know, it's really funny in Atlanta, he and my mother come to the to my readings and they have like a little stick they do about, you know, him not being a bigamist. But um, I do have two sisters and we have different mothers. We have the same father. They're older than me. They were born before my parents ever met. But I grew up in a house of boys in a family that loves us boys. And I always knew that I had a sister, ally, sister that I couldn't reach. that were just outside the frame, you know, that I couldn't touch because they lived far away with their mothers. And so that has always been something that has troubled me all my life. So that was one thing. And I'll, just the question of, because people think of it as a novel about bigamy because the first line is, you know, my father James Witherspoon is a bigamist. Mm-hmm. But but it, but emotionally, it's a novel about there. I have a, a sister, a, a person that is like me, that I know and don't know at the same time.
1: Right. Well, and I'm, I don't know personally. I'm, I'm fascinated by. Uh, the secrets in people's lives, just, you know, that everybody has those, you know, things that they kind of bury. And, uh, I think that's always interesting to see, you know, how that, how that can impact, um, people or characters or whatever, you know, the weight of that and how, and how it affects people, you know?
2: And questions of legitimacy is also to me and propriety and, you know, good behavior for women and bad behavior and how, I mean, the question of secret children it's really the cornerstone of, of Western literature. That's what the Greek myths are all about, Zeus having all those extra children. And the slave narrative is really all about Frederick Douglass or whoever the slave um, autobiographer saying, "I am the son of this plantation, but I do not own this plantation. I am owned by this plantation." So it's a question, but usually the question of disputed paternity is the main character is usually a son. And I believe that this is because it's about the transfer of wealth, you know, whether or not someone is an heir.
1: Right, right. You're talking about like digging way back into literary history.
2: Yes, yes. The, the question is like the, 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 the tragedy is like this person is the heir, but they are unable to be the heir but when it comes to daughters that person isn't the heir and so then the question becomes like in silver sparrow if dana that's my character is the secret daughter then her mother is not the man's you know legal wife then that kind of shame and this idea of being the other woman the outside woman the outside child trickles down to her yeah. in a different kind of way
1: yeah 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 well it's it's fascinating and uh I guess I'm curious. So last thing I'll ask you is: I'm curious to hear you talk about how you write. You know, like wh- Like what is your work schedule? You know, just do, are you a really disciplined, everyday kind of writer, or do you have a looser schedule with it? Like, how do you work?
2: I'm a morning person. I am a morning, 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 morning coffee, coffee, coffee kind of writer.
1: <laughs> okay, so how early are we talking? Like crack it on. And may
2: I tell you, they have the best coffee here at the Radcliffe Institute. They have this exquisite espresso maker. Um, I, can, I can do it as... I'm. My goal is I cannot get out of bed before 5 a.m. I believe that's when you start getting... Anything before 5 a.m. is still the middle of the night, mm-hmm. and I feel that that's a lack of like moderation. So I normally start writing... Um, I like to be up at 6. And since I'm here at Radcliffe, I come over to the Radcliffe office, and I'm the first person there as so far I turn on the coffee machine. And I like to get a couple early, early hours in, definitely. But my schedule here at Radcliffe is different than my normal schedule because I'm not teaching, et cetera. When I'm teaching, I try to get in two two days
1: a week. Of good writing.
2: Of good writing. I and mean, how, it's not great. Many, it's not ideal.
1: How many hours?
2: Um, I usually can get – if I can get three, I'm good.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's heartening because I have so many things going on schedule-wise and, like, that's about where I'm at. And, uh, you know, I used to, you know, when I was younger and I was single in my 20s and I was uh, getting my MFA, I could put more time in, you know, and it's just like then life sort of intrudes. You know,
2: <laughs> you, know you have to make your schedule around what your responsibilities are. Right. I mean, right. this is one reason why every time someone says, oh, Virginia Woolf says, you know, a writer needs a room of her own, I really cringe because – So many people don't have rooms of their own, but it doesn't mean that they won't get their book done. I feel like it's really discouraging the people to hear that. I mean, a room of one's own is nice. I mean, for me, the best writing place is the McDowell Colony because you get that little house of your own. But I wrote my first book literally in my closet with clothes in the closet too—desk and clothes in a closet.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, it's so funny. Like, there's a who did I can't remember who did that blog of like writers' spaces. Uh, but there was, like, Oh
2: this, yes, I remember that.
1: You know what I'm talking about? Where there's like all these great mm-hmm. photos of like writers in their workspaces. And like, sometimes you see these writing rooms and like, it's the most beautiful office with like, it's so, you know, beautifully furnished with like a view. And you know, I've like, I remember writing my first book, like just like staring at a blank white wall, like sitting at the same desk that I had in my room when I was like in seventh grade, you know, like,
2: Yes. I mean, you do what you, you know, you do what you have to. And like, what if you're like a single mom with, with kids and you don't have space? Are, are we going to say that that person can never be a writer? No, it's just going to take her longer to get her book out, but she's going to get it done.
1: So what's your, I mean, okay. So, and I, and I totally agree, but I'm curious, uh, what is your ideal writing space? Like, do you have a dream like a, a place that I know you said McDowell colony? Like, would you want to be somewhere? Yeah,
2: I like cozy. I like cozy
1: in the woods or in the city?
2: Um, in the woods,
1: in the woods. Okay. See. The...
2: In the woods. Cause too much to do in the city. <laughs> I would like to be in the woods. I want to be casually dressed. I want to wear overalls because I like all the pockets so I can put paperback book in there and, and I can just be really comfortable. <laughs> I want to be wearing fuzzy, like fuzzy slippers. Like I'd like to be really comfortable. I have like little weird quirks. Like I want um, lots of lip balm when I get nervous or frustrated. I <laughs> just Apply lip balm. I don't know why, but it makes me feel better.
1: Wow, this is a really specific fantasy. I like this. So, um, like fuzzy slippers, overalls with paperback book size pockets, and then mm-hmm. lots uh-huh. of lip balm, and some really, really good caffeine.
2: Yeah, really, really good caffeine. And that's an, at McDowell, you know, they give you a large thermos of coffee and you can sip from it all day.
1: Ugh. And so, do you need, uh, like, because like, this is something, like, for me, like, I need to be, first of all, I can't be in public. People who can write in public mystify me. Uh, unless I have headphones on, I guess, and I'm really like you know lost in music and I'm just focused, but I want to be closed off in a in a quiet room, maybe with like headphones on uh and I don't want a view almost I think if I had a view, I would just be looking out the window at the view. Does that
2: make sense? I actually like a view, I like a view, but I do like to be in private obviously because how of how I'm
1: dressed yeah, yeah, I mean you're not gonna i mean dress up though i yeah. have I have had days have you ever had days where you're like you know what? I'm going to dress up a little bit when I write today just to like see if that affects it. Do you ever do that? No,
2: no, no. I'm, <laughs> me and my overalls and my fuzzy slippers. But you know what helps me a lot is to clean the workspace before bed because then I've started the process before bed. So then when I wake up, I, all I need to do, is I want to be able to get up, walk to the table, sit down. Everything's ready. Cup, my cup is there. Everything's ready.
1: Oh, that's a good idea. And then what about like, like, there's the other one, the old one about like, you know, leaving off at a place where you know what's going to happen next.
2: No, I don't do that.
1: You don't do that? mm But you got it all. But I do like the idea of kind of like sorting everything out so that when you get up in the morning, it's just ready, you know, your workstation. Yes.
2: and you've. And when you went to bed, you had, it was ready. It was started, you know, so you just have to wake up and do the next step.
1: Uh, okay. Well, so what's the next step in terms of writing? Are you working on something new or are you, are you...
2: it's working on me? Oh, that's yes. right.
1: That's right. We talked about that. So you, uh, how far along are you? Not very, not very, but it's getting going and you can feel it.
2: I feel like I had the best idea. I think I'm ready. I was talking to my um, assistant, Sarah yesterday. I was taking her out for a little holiday meal and it just clicked for me. I think she's my lucky charm.
1: So you, so you verbalized it to her?
2: I did and she's a wonderful assistant and so she smiled at me and said that sounds great.
1: Yeah, that's I mean that's I think that's kind of that that might be kind of common where like if you're wrestling with a creative idea in writing uh and it's been sort of brewing in your subconscious and then you wind up talking to a friend or a confidant or something like that and all of a sudden you you kind of spit it out. Uh you can see it. Clearly for the first time that I feel like that's happened to me before where it's like I didn't even realize how how well I had a handle on it until somebody asked me about it. And suddenly I start rambling and, you know, it becomes apparent.
2: I was so excited. I was really. I was thinking. I was trying to make myself stop talking to her about it because this was supposed to be a holiday dinner where I thank her for all her hard work, not where she has to sit there and listen to me <laughs> right. and feel like she's on the clock.
1: Right. Right. Well, I guess I'm not going to ask you too much about it because like, I'm superstitious for you, but uh,
2: I am too. But yeah. it's good. That's all I'll say. It's good.
1: Okay. I really,
2: I, I really am into the characters. They have. I will tell you my. Heroin. She has a great name. Her name is Celestial.
1: Isn't that a nice name? That is a nice name. Uh, well, I am going to be eager to see uh, Celestial when she, you know, when she comes out and uh, in print. And I wish you all the best of luck with it. And enjoy the, you know, the, the second half of your uh, your time at Radcliffe. You know, your Radcliffe Fellowship.
2: Well, thanks for having me on your show. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no, it was fun to talk. <coughs> All right, everybody, there you have it. That's the program. That's Tiari Jones. Her latest novel, once again, is called Silver Sparrow. It is available now from Algonquin Books. You can find her online at tiarijones.com. And Tiari is spelled T-A-Y-A-R-I. She's on Twitter. Her handle is at Tiari. And you can find her on the Facebook as well. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at Other People Pod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, uh, the address is letters at com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, let me plug The Nervous Breakdown as well. That, once again, is my online culture magazine and literary community. You can find it at thenervousbreakdown.com. In my opinion, it features some of the better writing on the web. Uh, You know, hundreds of fine authors. Uh, many of whom have been on this program before. So go check it out. And uh, otherwise, in closing, uh, you know, weird human behavior, weird human uh, competitions, uh, you know, telling people that I rarely get sick. Uh, it's something I definitely feel like I got to stop doing. I feel like that's uh, that's problematic on some level. Uh, but I am uh, comforted by the fact that I didn't tell anybody that I never get the flu, uh, which, you know, my pharmacist did. And, uh, it now occurs to me, uh, that there is always the possibility that maybe the pharmacist was an alien and, uh, you know, maybe she was working undercover doing research on the human species, you know, working in a pharmacy, uh, you know, and instead of actually, you know, being some sort of pompous and detached human being, uh, she was actually trying to tell me the truth, you know, that she, she actually doesn't get the flu because, you know, you know what I'm saying? I guess it could have happened, but probably not. Uh, Personally, I want to go on the record right now and let you know that I am susceptible to the flu. I am a human being. Uh, I do get the flu from time to time. I do get head colds. And uh, I do recognize Gene Hackman when I see him in public, which I never have. But if I did, I would. Uh, I do recognize Lawrence Fishburne. I have seen him a couple times. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Paul Rudd, Charlize. Uh, I see you guys. And uh, I imagine that you see me pretending not to see you be yourselves in public. See what I mean?